not. Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Cipriano. We're continuing our Tartan Talk series by having a conversation with Brian Curley of Schmidt Curley Golf Design about the late Pete Dye. Brian worked alongside Pete Dye on numerous golf development projects, including the stadium course at PGA West. Brian will offer insight into Pete Dye's personality and work ethic and describe what the legendary golf course architect meant to people who worked with him. Before we get going with Brian, we'd like to thank Better Billy Bunker for supporting the Tartan Talk series. Better Billy Bunker is a huge supporter of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, which Pete Dye and his wife Alice Dye served as presidents. Better Billy Bunker is also a huge supporter of golf course superintendents. We're glad to have them on board, and we're glad Brian took some time to join us. Brian, thanks for joining the podcast. Uh, the first thing I want to ask you is, what was a work day like with Pete Dye? What was the pace like? And just describe what it was like being on site with him. Uh, well, you know, I, I guess the, the first big difference, and, uh, you know, I commented on it. Someone asked me the other day in, in regards to Pete's passing, and I had kind of made the comment that I don't know if you've ever been on a site visit when the, the designer comes to make the visit, but there's usually this big contingent of people, and depending on the the you know, the, I don't want to name names, but, you know, whatever, whatever group you're dealing with, obviously there's, you know, the, the big main designer who, who may be a golf pro at the same time. And, and there's a lot of hangers on, there's a big contingent, and there's a lot of their kind of guys from their group that everybody's there to please that person, you know, and not really buck the system, kind of, you know, I don't, yes man is kind of a harsh term, but, you know, there's no one's there to really challenge, um, that that person, but you know, it, and so those those kind of visits can be kind of awkward and stiff, and uh, you know, you, you you people kind of biting their tongue, and and a lot of times things get changed, and uh, you know that change was already talked about before, but no one wants to bring that up because you know there's the owners there, and he's he's hemorrhaging money, and you know, so sometimes those things could be kind of weird. Whereas with Pete, you know, a lot of times, you know, there was never that big contingent of people. It was, in my case, it was I was just with Pete on my own, or in the early days, in the landmark days, Lee, my partner Lee Schmidt and I, it was Lee and I and Pete. Uh, you know, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't this big, huge contingent of people. The owners, you know, were they kind of gave Pete carte blanche, do what you want, and never really challenged what he wanted to do. Um, Occasionally, they'd bring him into the into the kind of the office to talk about something, but it was never like that on site. So the site the site visits were so much more fun and and just kind of you know free flowing, organic, and and you know ideas back and forth, and and you know Pete was he was the one calling the shots and all that, but it was never in this overbearing, demanding kind of manner. So it was they were always very fun, and Pete was just a, a hoot to hang around with. He was so. He's just so unique. He was unique as a designer, obviously, and I think those people who didn't know him personally can see that, obviously. But, but I'm sure you've talked to a lot of people that you know the the stories that come out from the days of Pete are unique, unique in himself. You were in the early stages of your career when you started working with him. What were your first impressions, and what was his reputation like in the game at that point in the 1980s? 
Uh, yeah, so my first day on the job, my first day when I started working for Landmark Land Company was the day PJ West got approved. So on the next day, we shut down Jefferson Street and blocked it off and started, you know, the scrapers were all on site and boom, it, you know, was going. So I hit the ground running, and literally, I mean, we just, boom, got right into it. And Pete was coming off of, you know, his, his you know, the TPC Sawgrass course being done, and he, was, he had gotten a lot of attention for that. I actually, it was kind of funny, my, my parents, I grew up in Pebble Beach, and my parents were members out at Karma Valley Ranch, so I kind of had that introduction to the Pete Dye style of golf course, you know, when I was whatever, 18, 19 years old or something, so before I even came, came to meet him, I didn't really know anything about him, I just knew this, you know, that was a totally unique kind of course, so when it came time to Pete, meet, meeting Pete, you know, and that was coming off of the TPC, you know, obviously there was a whole game changer kind of attitude that was going on. Oh, another thing at that time, just kind of a side story, is Landmark, you know, was a, you know, Pidgey West is obviously a huge development at the time. It was four courses that expanded from there. But, you know, big, 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 massive piece of land. And they made a deal with uh, Sunrise Company, Bill Bell and Sunrise Company, which was one of the big, you know, country club developers there in the Valley. And they their deal, just, just as uh, Discovery Land does everything with Fazio at that time, uh, Sunrise, everything they did was with Ted Robinson. Well, Sunrise, Landmark, was the land company. Sunrise was coming in to build the houses at PJ West, and they said, hey, you know, we're bringing Ted Robinson to do the golf. And Landmark had said, no, 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 we're not using Ted Robinson. So they actually paid Ted Robinson to go away. And because, you know, Sunrise was pushing Ted to do the stadium course, because they wanted something pretty with waterfalls and all that. And, they, and Ernie and Joe at Landmark uh, said, no, 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 we're, we're using Pete. And so they actually paid Ted to, to go away and Pete and Gobble. So, so I, got, I got kind of thrown into the fire dealing straight with Pete because I was – the joke in the business was that Pete can't draw his own breath. And, you know, Pete kind of chicken scratch his hand on a, on a set of plans and, you know, trying to get his ideas down. And he had great ideas, but he was never really great at putting it down – pen to paper, so to speak. So, and then Lee, my partner at the time, who eventually got better at producing plans, Lee was coming out of the construction, and so Lee was really not anybody to do plans. So, and I'm 24 years old or something, but I could draw. And so I got thrown into that equation, which was just meeting with the owners, meeting with Pete, and, and boom, and I, I was the one that was there to kind of nail everything down on plan. So um, it was great. It was just like, just, uh, just like, just like I said, just like really just thrown right into the fire right off the bat. Since Pete has passed, there's been a lot of discussion about what he meant for golf in Indiana and Harbortown and, and the PGA Tour down in Ponta Vedra and Kohler. But what did, what did he mean to the Coachella Valley? What did that start for golf in that part of the country, the stadium course at PGA West? Uh, God, you just at the time, the stadium course was um, just – uh, just crazy. I mean, the the way that it was thrown at. You got to remember, there had never been a push to create a stout championship. You know, hard as nails, kind of, tough as nails, kind of course. Everything there had been built. You know, really to sell houses, but to accommodate you know golfers. Uh, you know, twenty handicapped golfers in pink sweaters. You know. It wasn't. It wasn't to accommodate necessarily the tour pro, and then the tour had you know made stops there on occasion. But they went in there, they tear up you know the, the local courses, and so when Landmark got involved, it was uh, you know they they wanted to bring you know the direct direct the directive at the time. I'm sure you've read was you know they told Pete we want the hardest course 
in the world. And Pete went in there and uh, he created, you know, at the time, just something that was just so contrary to everything that you've seen in really, uh, you know, there were, you, you could, you could, you could go back to, to extreme. Some of it, some of it had relative imaging to, to what you might see in links courses and things with massive dunes and things. But, but as far as the Palm Desert, Palm Springs look, you know, getting away from that uh, palm trees and waterfalls and lakes thing to, to what he created was just, it was a shock and, and to, 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 to players. But, you know, it's it funny at that time, I think if that course were to open today, I think that there would be a lot more of a blowback from potential members and buyers who now are kind of pushing for, you know, a different style of course. But at the time, everybody was trying to out-tough everybody, and they saw success in other people building tough courses, so then everybody said, well, we're going to be tougher than the next guy. And, and it, it, I mean, it burst onto the scene. And I, I think to this day, I think there's a misconception that, that the course, when it was initially in the, in the rotation of, the, of what was the Bob Hope, um, that the, there's a there's a story kind of spin out there that the players didn't like it. It was too tough, and that really wasn't the case. I, the players, you know, all the players I thought really liked the course. What they didn't like was that in that tournament you're forced to play with a bunch of amateurs, and because the course was so demanding on amateurs, all of a sudden the rounds of golf were you know six hour rounds of golf, and the players revolted not because they didn't like the course, but they didn't like to get stuck on that golf course. With a bunch of bunch of amateurs who 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 couldn't make their way around the course, and for those that remember, when I think the first time that they played there in the in the Hope was when Tip O'Neill was Speaker of the House, was stuck down in the bunker on on 16 for you know about a day and a half, and and the players just said, yeah, "This is a joke. We can't. These guys can't play here, so we need to go somewhere else." You're 24 years old. You're a Northern California kid working in the middle of the Southern California desert with a legendary golf course architect. What, what did you learn from him just on that first project? There were a lot of, you know, funny things. I, it was great because I think a lot of guys work with architects and, you know, they work on a specific job and they might, you know, they might be in an office and, you know, the, 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 the boss, so to speak, comes and goes and he's out on site. And, but, you know, it was different in that Pete was, you know, I didn't, I didn't work for Pete. I worked for Landmark, and Pete was our client. So, I, but you know, but Lee and I were there on site. We actually officed, you know, on the property. So, so we're there every day, and it's a big difference when you, um, when you, when you, when you're there on a on a site from start to finish, and not just kind of popping in and out. So, so being there all the time. But Pete, Pete is one of those players. You know, I, I made a comment the other day. Pete, I think it's going to Pete going to be in time known for two kinds of courses, the ones that he was really, really integrally involved in, and then those that, you know, have his name on it, but he may or may not even gone. And and if you look at the courses that he's produced that he has that that are his his, you know, top ten courses, those are the ones where he basically moved to the site. So working with Pete, unlike working with a, a, a Nicholas or Norman or someone where you get him at, you know, pieces at a time, you know, you spend a lot of time, so so it, it went beyond just um, just the the normal kind of golf course discussions. But it was just like everything about him, and you know, for someone who's you know when I was young like that, you know, he'd pull out his calendar, and I remember one of the first things, you know, his his entire like every day, you know, it was you know at that time at that time you think oh you work five days and you have a weekend, and and he had his travel calendar, and they're like every day was spoken for, and he was always somewhere, someplace, and 
he didn't really have an office to go to. So he just went from place to place to place. And it just hit me. That was one of the things that really hit me early on. Was, hey, if you're going to do this uh, and do it right, you know, you're, you're not you're not hanging out. Uh, you know, you're not hanging home on weekends. You're you're gone. And if you're and if you're not working on the site on the weekend, you're traveling to the next one. And it just it hit me early on that hey, to, in order to do this job right, you need to fully commit to it. And Pete was, you know, obviously just just fully committed to to those things that he the, the courses that he really really got involved with. He was. He was really, really uh, to the point of running, running crews, not just running around with a set of plans and saying, "I, I got to go somewhere else." What type of energy did he have when he was on site? Uh, he was great. He was, and he was, he was uh, fun to play with. You know, and, and the thing too is, we would, he would spend time, uh, you know, on site during the day. Then a lot of times in the afternoon, we, we'd go play. We'd go play um, like La Quinta, well, at the La Quinta in the Landmark. We owned the La Quinta Hotel, so we had the mountain course. Uh, at the time, so occasionally we'd go out there and play. So we'd play golf on occasion, and uh, so it's yeah. It, it, he was he had he had just uh, he had a great fun energy about him, and was just very you know just very talkative uh, about everything, and was just like I said just he was just uh, he was just really 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 fun to be around always a lot of levity never 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 one who was you know overly negative about this or that and he would gripe about things on occasion but for the most part he put his head down and and you know really kind of knew how to how to how to get things done and you got to remember too is that prior to his career as a golf course architect builder he was he was he was one of the best insurance salesmen in the business so you know you don't sell insurance you don't get to that level of being a salesman without great sales skills and what that's nothing that struck me early on is if you're going to succeed in this business you need a certain skill set but you also be you also have to be able to to sell those ideas and concepts to owners and he was he was magical when it came down to to talking the owner into doing something i remember having meetings with ernie and joe Saying that you know Pete wants to do this or that, and there's no way we're going to let him do that. Don't let him talk and talk us into it. And next thing you know, Pete comes in. He's got his Ashuk's Midwestern kind of manner of, about him, and and next thing you know, they give in, and he, Pete gets gets his way. And there was always that Pete always got his way. So you're saying you learned maybe as much about handling people from him as you did technical golf course architecture skills? Yeah, for sure. And and. And you know, I, it was funny. It was more, you know, it really more of a building than a designing. Because, like I said, Pete, Pete relied on me. You know, we worked on, you know, a dozen different things, probably. Um, and Pete relied on me to to produce, you know, the plans. So, so uh, it wasn't like I was I was getting, um, you know, lessons in plan production from him. It was more. It was more about trying to harness the the ideas and the concepts that were in his head and trying to put those down to plan, and you know, kind of kind of feed off of what it is he was trying to accomplish, and then, given that, you try to you know you try to get down to a plan to a working drawing kind of kind of thing. I, you know, like for instance the the stadium course. You know, he and Lee worked out the basics of the plan in a really rudimentary manner, like basically just kind of shapes, you know, like here's a here's a lake at this elevation, a fairway at this elevation, and bum, 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 bum. And I, and I had to go back in there and, and tie it all in functioning grades and make it all work. So so my role early on, on, on was to kind of clean up 
and be able to tie down, tether to earth the things that he was, you know, trying to accomplish. How did the initial plan compare to some of the final products? Okay, here's, here's the deal. If, if someone gave you abandoned dunes, you would start out and you'd say, you know, there's tea green here, blah, 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 because the landforms are there. And you, you would probably adjust along the way depending on what you found. And if you had some site that had outcrops or whatever, you know, you'd adjust to that as you clear. And, you know, more natural sites like that. Yeah, I remember, and, and so much of what Pete created in his, in his career were, were creations as opposed to adaptations. But, but certainly the things that we did in the desert, you know, you get a flat field of alfalfa, and you don't just go wave your arms around and have, you know, 50 pieces of equipment watching you. You know, you have to have a plan. So you have to start with something, and especially you have to start with your basic, what drives a lot of those early things. You're creating your, your housing pads. You know, you're, basically your pads go up and your golf goes down. But you've got to go in there and establish, you know, your lake shapes. And you can imagine, like, the stadium course, the, the, lakes, the lake shapes, uh, that get excavated, those, uh, those probably hardly, hardly a variance at all because you have to live. You go in there, you send a bunch of equipment in, start moving millions of yards of dirt around, and you don't, you know, you don't change your mind, say, oh, I want, the, I want the lake on the other side of the hole, not this side of the hole. You, know, you, you, you have to make, you have to make um, commitments along the way to the plan. Now, that doesn't mean that once the plan's established that, the, the fine-tuning that takes place on any given green or, or bunker complex or whatever, you know, that's, that's all stuff that happens, you know, from the ground up. He's just kind of dealing with it, and he gets in the shape of it. You know, Pete would just kind of, he would just, you know, most of the time he'd say, just give me, you know, give me 60 foot by 100 foot, and I'll start playing with something. You know, he didn't really always have a, a really, you know, anything really preconceived, I think, in terms of what he wanted to do from a, from a, a a green point of view, but you just kind of gave them the canvas to work to, so to speak. But you have to, when you're creating a course and moving a bunch of dirt, you know, you have to commit to something along the way. So that's why it was important. And Ernie and Joe were real, you know, they, with me, they were like, hey, really, we, we don't want to, we don't want to, we don't want to do these things twice. So make sure you, you know, we do this one time. So, so, so uh, it's kind of a blend of both worlds. On one hand, on one hand, you have to commit to certain things, but the other hand, you still want the magic of the moment of, you know, the, like I've always said, you know, the plans are the 80 percenters that get you there, but the, the, true, the true designing really happens out in the field, and, and as much as you want to walk around, I know architects are walking around with a set of plans, and they point out where catch basins are supposed to be or something, and I was like, you know, you, know, you, you, work, you work to the big picture, work to the big picture, and then fine-tune it from there and build it from there. So it's kind of a combination of things. But we certainly were building golf courses as opposed to discovering golf courses for the most part, except for something like, like um, you know, very few people know it, but the, Palme, the Cabo courses, Palmia, Palmia and Cabo del Sol, which are two, uh, a couple of Nicholas courses, in fact, I think Cabo del Sol is one of, one of my favorite Nicholas courses. Those were landmark. We had our savings loan. We were bringing the money to the, pro, to the party and we were going to to um, uh, build two peak courses, or you know, both were peak courses or projects. Even to the point moving the highway on Cabo del Sol, all the initial master planning and all that. Well, I went down to Cabo for a couple of years, and so those were natural sites, you know, where you go out and find holes. 
And uh, we were actually under construction to create Pete Dye golf courses when the savings and loan crisis hit. Landmark lost their, their purse to go be able to fund things. And Don Cole, who owned the place, said, screw you guys. We're going to go take – we're going to – we got to get another source of money. And, you know, they want to use Nicholas. And and so there's there's a lot of that goes on in the business, too. But th- those were cases where, you know, it was a matter of finding golf holes as opposed to creating golf holes. Did you receive the opportunity to travel with them? on his plane or in cars and what was he like away from the golf course? Uh, he was, he, he was, he was really, really, um, really, he was fun to be around. You know, we'd go to dinner would uh, he, you know, the, we, the guys I, you know, that talk about the old days with Pete, you know, you always had to get him back in time to watch Matlock. You know, that was the one big thing when you traveled with him. But um, he, uh, he was, he was just, he was uh, just, Super, always fun to be around. He get, um, he'd, he'd get to where he he would, I don't know, sure melancholy, but he would he would have his moments where he would, you know, talk about, you know, kind of old days or whatever. But uh, for the most part, it was kind of in the moment and and just just always just always a lot of fun. Did he ever talk about anything besides golf or Matlock? Uh, sure, sure, sure. We used to. Well, I used to. I'm a big conspiracy theorist. So I used to always have throw my conspiracy conspiracies at him at the time, and uh, he'd he'd go on with those. But uh, you know, he was he was um, he was really most of, most of the time it was golf, and he was a big Hogan fan, and he would always talk about you know because you got to remember the time his his big push at the time was really challenge the elite players, you know, really push to get into their heads. To create courses that challenged the better players, and uh, you know, obviously, and at the time, we're dealing with with you know the players at the time, with the Faldos and the couples and the whatevers at the time. And uh, but he would he would reference, uh, I mean, by far the, the the player he spoke about the most was Hogan, and he was just enamored. He was just he thought the world of Hogan and his ability to play, and and he would always reference. Uh, as good as the players were, you know, at that time, and certainly hitting the ball longer and all that, but none of them had the skill sets that Hogan had. So he he would, when it when it came to talking about golf, it was it was a lot of that. And and got to remember too, the landmark guys, especially Ernie Vossler, had ties to Texas and Hogan and all that. So sitting around the table, um, you know, reminiscing about old times, it was it went back to. Uh, a lot of those kind of stories, but that that was another fun thing too. Is at the time, is you know you're talking about developers who were who came from the tour, and so uh, you know there were just always, always, always a lot of stories uh, that were back to the old days, the Palmer days, and this and that. So so I got I got a really good dose of the history of of. I probably got more of a dose of kind of the history of the sport and the history of the game and events and tournaments and players more so than the the actual architecture end of things. And at the time, you know, I don't, I wasn't really at the beginning. I was, I probably wasn't really looking back. I probably should have taken better notes of some of the things he probably said along the way. But uh, it was, uh, it was, it was. Uh, it was definitely uh, unique and, and always gen- generally always golf-centered. He wouldn't get off that topic too much. A big part of many golf course architects' work is making the course work with the real estate or development that's associated with, with it. How much consideration did Pete pay to the real estate element of some of the places you worked? 
Um, yeah, you know, one of the, well, I remember one of the big things, and again, you know, I'm young getting going on the thing, and, you know, I, and my background is in land planning, so I, I did all the master planning for Landmark and all that, so I was, so I'd work with Pete, you know, early on, and, you know, and it, one of his big things is he, he didn't, as long as there was adequate, I'll call it elbow room, he didn't really have a problem with, with housing on the golf course. He knew, you know, he understood that's what, that's what buttered the bread, and that's what paid the bills, and that's what made these endeavors possible. Um, so, but he didn't really have a problem with housing at, along the sides of holes, as long as because the golfer views, you know, the, the homeowner views the hole from the side looking in, and the golfer views it from tee to green. What he what he was uh, would always push and really, you know, really harped on me was 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 whenever we were routing things out and doing land plans, he didn't want housing behind as a backdrop to a green so a golfer looking to a green he wanted to have some sort of landform or landscape or something so that the pin didn't get blended in with someone's white stucco patio but the pin was offset by a landform or trees or whatever and so 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 that was one of the things i remember early on was was it wasn't just a matter of of making sure that there was adequate size but he really keyed on backdrops to holes the point where, if you can imagine, like rather than playing a hole like you see so many times, say in Palm Springs, the backdrop to that hole would be a house because the developer loves the idea of that house looking up the length of the hole. So rather than the green being there, and then you go to your right and you and you get the tee for the next hole, he'd want to tuck the back tee of the next hole behind that green, so that there had to be, so that you know the hole, let's say, takes a 90 degree turn, the north, the corridor. So the so the backdrop to that green was then, in the case of certainly in the case of the stadium course, you know, a massive mound. But um, he he was he was he was always like I said, it, it, he understood the relationship of golf and housing. But he always his his emphasis was on cutting down the green to tee connections. He said, even though everybody's in cart, you, you you know, you really want to make it as walkable as possible. And also focusing on backdrops to greens, and really not wanting because he just felt like that just ruined the experience when 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 you when the pin blended in with someone's patio. You know, I've spoke to a number of superintendents the last few days about Pete, and they all said that Pete was a giant front of the golf course superintendent. What was his relationship like with the superintendents, and how much did maintenance factor into some of his decisions? Well, he spent a lot of time. Um, um, with the the, um, the superintendent there at at PJ West, uh, he would he would spend uh, he would spend significant amount of time with the superintendent during construction and certainly during the growing process and even even in you know in, in the in the while play had already started and in the years to come, uh, I remember Jeff Pritchard was the director of all the courses at at. At PJ West, and you know, whenever Pete came into town, he he Jeff, you know, he'd kind of have to block out his entirety of a couple of days because you know Pete would drag him around um, the stadium course for for you know just hours and hours on end about talking about the little nuances um, here and there. He certainly was he certainly got into the details of 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 the golf course and how it was being maintained for sure. Have you ever thought about where your profession would be? Had Pete Dye not come along when he came along? Oh, you know, I don't know. I think I think the impact was 
was great on a lot of levels. Uh, I think that um, he, uh, the, like I said, some of the courses, you know, the, it's weird, is is what comes out of, the, if you look at the designers that came out of the peat tree and the mo- notable ones like Doak and Kurt Crenshaw, and even though they're, they're pushing a look that is, you know, very detached from what you would normally associate with what Pete is looking, you know, which, which is the, the more natural. And to me, it's a lot of stuff. The, the, the lack of catch basins being one thing, the surface drainage versus catch basins. Um, but if you, if you, if you so, so, so they don't really look anything the same, but if you look at them in plan view and the basic strategy and how things set up and how angles are taken into consideration and how greens set an angle, and it, even though, even though it not, it's not as hard-lined and edged and, you know, linear hazards and linear edges of lakes and all these kind of things that are so hard and manufactured on, on Pete's courses, a lot of that, a lot of that still holds true, but the, the way that, the way the holes are kind of framed and the way to integrate into the, into the, into the surrounds is just different. But, but the basic, the basic, I think a lot of the basics of what Pete pushed, you know, in working with him still is 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 there today in a lot of those courses they it just doesn't appear that way to the person who looks and sees something rugged and gnarly and and you know the exact opposite of what you see at the at TPC today but I do think too is there's while the pendulum has swung towards um courses that are more natural not to say that that's not going to be a trend because for a lot of reasons it'll it will still remain that way but I think that I think that some of these, some of the courses that that uh, maybe maybe don't have kind of lost favor in in recent years. I think do come back because because that you know it, it's it's a kind of a fickle business where all of a sudden you'll see you'll see things from the past will come back into light and and I I, I could see I, I mean not to say that. Pete's name has lost its luster, but I just think that some of these, some of some of his better courses, will endure and even endure better in the years to come. How often did Alice come around when you were on site, and what did she mean to the whole operation? You know, I don't. I would say, uh, you know, very seldom. I, I, I very seldom saw Alice, but when she was there, she would really, really. She really focused on one thing, and it was the, the lady player, and you know. She didn't want, you know, cart pass on the left side of the tee where the guys sitting in the cart are looking at the girl's skirt. She didn't want, you know, forced carries. She didn't want this. Didn't want, and and she wanted openings into greens. And as as tough as you know, it's funny. As tough as a lot of Pete's courses are, as demanding they are, or as you know, which you look at how things set up. But his his push was that you could. You, he always wanted to kind of be able to kind of bump the ball into the center of the green. And obviously, it's not the case. On every green you ever did, but but it's on more than you think. You know, a lot of times your eye goes to the to the really tough stuff. But I mean, for instance, at 16 at stadium course at at um, you know PJ West where they just played this week. You know, I mean, you could you could putt it up to the green from the tee if you wanted. For the most part, you know, you could roll it around there. So so Alice was very instrumental in focusing on on. Um, Certainly on lady player, but even just kind of the average player. So, so I think that where Pete probably could have made some incredibly tough, tough, tough golf courses if he wasn't 
you know, he, he if, if, if Alice wasn't, wasn't in the equation, he probably would have made things so tough that, I mean, it, it, it paled compared to what you see on some courses right now. So I, I think she was a big influence that way. She wasn't a big influence in terms of a, 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 a constant presence, you know, not she wasn't there that much, but you know she had she has those she would have those E.F. Moton E.F. Hutton moments where when she when she spoke you know Pete listened up you know, he was he would he would certainly clue in on on what she had to say in regards to the average player. Looking back on it, how fortunate were you to have the experiences you had with with Pete? Oh, it was great. You know, I, I just I don't think that uh, I caught you know I caught lightning in the bottle for sure by just I mean. You know, fresh out of college, basically, just my my essentially my first job was uh, working for a landmark, and so it was not just it was it was just not it was it wasn't just being exposed to that whole world, but it was it went beyond Pete, it went beyond the architecture, it went into the whole thing, and we were doing tournaments, we were doing skins games, we were doing this. I was you know put into you know hanging around the best players of the day, and. And it's so I just really got you know it was it was it was just lightning in a bottle and, you know and 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 I think I made the most of it but like I said I I also didn't I didn't um, I think one thing that like I said dealing with Pete early on I saw the commitment that he had you know he 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 you know he didn't he, he didn't just he didn't just give it a quick little nod and a wink and move on to the next thing he was. He was fully committed to making something as good as it could be, and 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 pressing, and pushing, uh, whenever it was needed to get what he wanted. So, so I think that as as much it was as as it was some of the physical, you know, the 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 traits learned or the design learned or the you know the nods to designs of the past, and you know he brought up template holes and those kind of things that you hear about at the time at, nowadays that you know he's talking about that back in the you know the mid '80s. But so the, there was there was there was certainly that. But I think I think a lot of it was just the um, just the the commitment that you have to have in this business to to really put in the time and, and, and effort in. And I think that it, that that probably in, in order to in order to make it in this business, you know, you you got to be good at what you do. But but you know, you got to give it a hundred ten percent. And and it's time consumer. And 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 you know, you have to sacrifice a lot of things. Outside of, you know what what, uh, you know your friends are doing otherwise on weekends and all that because you're off to the next place. But that's I learned that early on dealing with Pete. But make the most of it because he loved what he did and I love what I do and I think that that same passion I picked up as much as anything else as far as technical skills or anything else. How much did Pete mean to the people that worked with him? Oh, it was great. You know, everybody knows that person. It, that you know, it's it, whether it's the guy at a company or wherever, you know, it's Jimmy. And, and it, all you got to do is say Jimmy's name, and everybody smiles because he's the guy that makes everybody happy and laugh. And whether he's got a joke or a this or that, but you know, everybody is like it's that guy that makes everybody happy. And so it was the same kind of thing was with Pete. It's all you got to do with certain people who knew him. But you, all you got to do is say is Pete's name, and you know, you'd get a smile across your face because he was he was so. He was so fun to be around, and and so unique. And you kind of you kind of you never knew what you were going to get out of him. You never knew what he was going to say. You never knew. Uh, he was just 
there was something about them that was just, you know, it's it's an old, you know, you read it all the time. Well, they broke the mold. They don't make them like that anymore. But I, I don't know. Of all the people I've met in my life, I can't think of anybody that was so uniquely suited to do what he did and do it well and be able to sell it and be able to stay on top of it and commit to it and be passionate about you. All those things rolled into one person. I've never met anybody else like that in my life. And he brought, I don't know anybody to this day who, who had anything bad, negative to say about him. I mean, he, he was, he was, uh, he was just, you know, just fun to be around but at the same time. And you just, you obviously, you, you, you um, respected everything that he did and, and where he was coming from and, and, you know, nothing, it was never challenged, but at the same time, he was not, he was not a, like a challenging person, he was just someone who I think draw the would, would draw the best out of everybody around him. Last thing here, could anything remotely close to Pete Dye ever come along again in the golf industry? Uh, boy, I don't know. You know, I I think that the days of anything like that happening in the states are you know the, just because of the business in general, and I think that those. Um, uh, those those owners who might have the spectacular site, you know, I, I don't know how much free reign they would give to their people, but, you know, Pete was just kind of a, he, he was allowed to do whatever he wanted. I kind of get the same thing, to be honest, in, in dealing with other places, right, right now in, you know, I'm dealing in Vietnam, and I, you know, I, I do whatever I want, so, you know, I don't have ownership breathing down on me, because the people I deal with really don't they're not really golfers. They don't, you know, you know, they're in, they're, they're, they're in the business for other, for, to, to develop houses and do, do resorts. And, you know, they trust me to get it done. So I think right now, you know, I, I feel like I'm kind of get, I, I have that same kind of experience that Pete had. I, I'm the same age, probably roughly that Pete was. And I probably when I first met him. And, and so I kind of get that free reign in certain places in other parts of the world because you're dealing with a lot of clients who who are not maybe as savvy or don't know or not haven't had an experience and they're they're very trusting in that respect. I don't see that happening in most of the western market. And then you throw in the, all the equation into the equation all the issues with approvals and approval bodies and and permitting and blah 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 and, and you start to get pretty handcuffed and I I don't think that's the case as much so 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 you know in the case of a lot of a lot of places and markets where I'm dealing you have you have a lot more free reign to do what you want, and if you can have a decent budget and a great site and a client who doesn't really bear down on you, if at all, then uh, you know I, there are very few there are very few opportunities like that in the, in in what's a tough business to begin with. Brian, well, we we really appreciate the insight, and we appreciate you doing this on short notice. Thanks for joining the uh, Tartan Talks podcast, you bet. and hopefully we get a chance to, to speak again. Happy to.